0: Welcome to the School of Media and Public Affairs at the George Washington University. Uh, I'm Stephen Hess. This is the fifth and final uh, program in our series of uh, presidential transition conversations uh, based on my book, uh, modeled after my book, What What Do We Do Now? A Workbook for the President-Elect. I'm joined again by Marvin Kalb, the uh, Edward R. Murrow Professor Emeritus at Harvard, Uh, He will be the moderator tonight as he once was on NBC's Meet the Press. Our subject today is presidential speech writing. The other day I heard a TV reporter describe the Senate as the most exclusive club in Washington. Uh, Once again, TV was wrong. The most exclusive club in Washington is the Judson Welliver Society. (laughs) They're laughing, you're not laughing, and I'll tell you why. You don't know that Judson Welliver was the first White House assistant whose job was writing presidential speeches. Uh, His boss was President Warren Harding, uh, and the uh, club named uh, in his honor is reserved only for those who have served as presidential speechwriters in the White House. So you are facing four Wellovarians right now. Uh, on my extreme right, uh, not ideologically, just happens to be sitting there, is, uh, is Walter Shapiro. Uh, Walter was a speechwriter for President Jimmy Carter. Uh, next is Raymond K. Price. He was, Ray was a speechwriter for Richard Nixon. On my left is Michael Waldman. Mike was a speechwriter for President Bill Clinton, uh, and I was a speechwriter for President Dwight Eisenhower. I should add that there is life after the White House, Uh, and uh, Walter, for example, among his many lives, Uh, has been uh, the uh, columnist for USA Today and the Washington Bureau Chief of the online magazine Salon. Uh, Ray uh, has been, was for many years, the president of the Economic Club of New York. Uh, Mike Wallman is the director of the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University Law School. That's your panel, Marvin.
1: And what about you?
0: Uh, I've been around, too. (laughs) Take it away. Okay. Mm.
1: Well, I don't want to make it difficult for any of you at the very start. So I just want to know, what kind of a speech would you write for Barack Obama, who has to deliver one next Tuesday? And I will start with Brett.
2: Well, um, his will be a first. There's a big difference between a first inaugural and a second. Hmm. Uh, First inaugural, you're introducing yourself as president. It's the first thing you do as president after taking the oath is to deliver that speech. And uh, the, the country and the world have seen you in the campaign. Now they're seeing you for the first time as president. And uh, you want to give them a sense of the directions in which you want to take the country, what you want from them, as well as what you're offering to them. That is the, that is the people of the country and of the world. Uh, because, uh, and that's a very important point too, because a US president, when he's inaugurated, his audience is global because of the, the role that America has and must continue to have in the world and he needs the help of other nations as well as of his own. Uh, so he's uh, he has multiple audiences. He's trying to lay out directions. It should not be programmatic, uh, but it should point directions, uh, priorities and so forth to some extent, but uh, more thematic than, than detailed.
1: But Ray, that would be, um, if he weren't the first black American mm-hmm. to be president of the United States. So Mike, what would you, think he's thinking about now as he tries to fashion that speech, or has it already been written, maybe a month or two ago? We'll
3: it's interesting, he has consistently chosen at moments where he was the first black nominee, where that has been front and center, he has dealt with it with a very light touch, mm-hmm. which has been very effective. So that in his speech at, uh, on election night, he referred to something the preacher said. Oh uh, no, the pre- that was at the convention speech which was the anniversary of the I Have a Dream speech. And and on uh, election night, he told the story of America through the life of an elderly woman that was clearly the story of racial progress as much as anything else, but he didn't say, and hey, look at me. Uh, And I think he'll want to do the same thing. I would assume he'll want to do the same thing on Tuesday. I I agree with Ray that this is, uh, one of the things these speeches do is they're the introduction of a president. But this has been such an extraordinary and unusual transition because of the crisis in the country, he has been acting in some respects as president uh, much more than would otherwise have been the case. So it's, certainly
1: on domestic
3: affairs. Yeah, and, and I, I, I think that uh, he's spoken of reading a lot of Lincoln. I think there's also a likelihood that he will want to read it, or I hope that he'll read a bit of FDR's first inaugural because that what that did was turn the country's confidence around by pledging, as he said, action and action now. And I think that to the extent that that he can inject confidence in the public through psychology, through the celebration of the new presidency, that can itself be a poly- It's not a program. You can't put a dollar figure on it, but that can have a policy impact.
1: Walter, do you think that um, there has actually been a speechwriter doing this speech, or is Obama doing it by himself?
4: As near as we know. I mean, there are very few, like everything else, they have kept this in a Dick Cheney-like secure, <laughs> undisclosed location. But as near as we know, John Favreau, the speechwriter, said two interesting things publicly. He met with Barack Obama and David Axelrod back in, I guess, November to start talking about the speech. And the first thing they agreed is it would be no longer than 20 minutes, uh-huh. only 15 minutes. And number two, and the thing I'm a little scared, more scared about, Favreau told, I believe, the Boston Globe, I'm reading a lot of inaugural addresses. <laughs> Because my theory of this is that Barack Obama, everyone else looks at Barack Obama as the first African-American president or the first one-term senator from Illinois president. As a speechwriter, I look at him as the first president who never heard on live television John Kennedy's 1961 inaugural. Mm -hmm. So in a large way, he is the only, as close as Ted Sorensen is to the Obama speechwriters, he is the only president-elect who does not hear John Kennedy's voice in his head whenever he hears the word inaugural address.
1: Well, come on, he could have watched it on television. I know. 20 times.
4: but the emotional nature of for a Nixon, for a Bill Clinton of that Kennedy inaugural address is so much greater than uh, somebody who lumps it mentally with the FDR inaugural address. One last thing on FDR, which who we'll come back to a lot, is when FDR gave his the only thing we have to fear is fear itself speech, the depression had been going on for three and a half years. So there was not a level of convincing the public of the magnitude of the crisis. Remember, we're in something like month four of the Wall Street wipeout. And there's still a level of incongruity to what has happened to all those trillions of dollars. So it's a different rhetorical challenge. And um, also, if you read FDR carefully, um, the last half of the 1933 speech is about, if Congress doesn't act, I may take near dictatorial power which um, might be more
0: appropriate for a Dick Cheney inauguration
4: than a Barack Obama inauguration. Steve. Let, let, me,
0: let me pick up uh, then, uh, because I hadn't realized that they had been studying past inaugural addresses. But now I, I, I say this shrinking knowing that two of the four of us here were the principal speechwriters on inaugural addresses. Ray, uh, on, uh, on the Nixon inaugural, uh, particularly the first one, which I like a lot. And Mike on on the first, at least the first uh, of the Clinton inaugurals, but most inaugural addresses are mediocre to awful. Uh, I would hate to think that that's what's in his ear. There are only about four to six, I think, that that really are superb. I would love to have this man, our future president, start right from scratch. Why? Anybody who has read uh, Dreams from My Father knows that he is the greatest writer we have had who will be president since Abraham Lincoln. Why start any other place but that? I would also, both in, in, in what uh, Mike said a bit of, about Lincoln and, and what Walter said a bit about FDR, I hope he goes very light on the quotes. I hope that people will be quoting Barack Obama. Uh, and, and this is particularly true of all of the Lincoln-esque qualities so far which i think are appropriate the lincoln bible the trip down from philadelphia and so forth i hope i hope he'll keep away from the lincoln inaugural addresses which were two of the greatest inaugural addresses but have nothing to do with with what we're at now i mean the first one in 1861 uh was about defending the, the, the country was about to split apart, and the, the next one in 1865, just as the war was ending, he didn't live to see it, was for reconciliation. So I don't really think that if you read those two marvelous ones that they're necessarily appropriate for now. Excuse me, Margaret.
1: Well, no, no not at all, and I want to pick up with this four to six that you said that you really liked. Mm-hmm. But let me first go to Ray, and since you wrote two inaugural speeches, what is that experience like? How does it happen? What is the role of the president? What is your role? Are you just the speechwriter or are you really providing ideas and contexts?
2: Well, uh, I, think, uh, I think writing with uh, with Nixon was different than, than with most other presidents. And that's why I never say I wrote for him. I say I wrote with him. And uh, my educated guess, having run the writing staff in our White House, was that as president, about one out of 20 of his speeches was written about 19 out of 20 were not, and he never used notes. He was more comfortable without a text than with one. And anything that, that I did with him, it would normally be back and forth through about seven or eight drafts, as he did it me, I did it him, back and forth, until he had what he wanted to say the way he wanted to say it.
1: But you would do the first draft? Right?
2: I would normally do the first draft, yeah. And, but then it would go on from there. But, but uh, with the inaugural, I, did, I was his collaborator on both inaugurals, first and second. And the first one, of course, was very heady. He, ha- he himself had read all the previous inaugurals, all of them. Uh, yeah, and he uh, he, not so much to pick up from them, but partly in order to see what to avoid. Uh, and he did not. He very consciously did not want to echo the Kennedy uh, inaugural. Uh, wanted to avoid that. Uh, but uh, so, but he was he was he was looking at. He uh, got uh, input from a lot of people who. Uh, Some he asked for, others just kept pouring in people with ideas and suggestions for it, and I don't think he picked up much for that. Bear in mind, in his case, he had been a champion debater from high school on, and that's one of the reasons he was always more comfortable without a text than with one. And he was very quick and very, uh, he was a lawyer, and uh, very good on his feet, very good extemporaneously.
1: But help Uh, us, excuse me, help us understand that first draft. Mm -hmm. Before you put a word you to know, paper, do the two of you sit there and say, these are the five points I wanted to make
2: uh, not not uh, not in the sense of five points or anything, but we discussed it a lot uh, These are the major
1: things about the economy well, you know, this I, is foreign policy i don
2: 't recall just what the what the discussions were but but we talked things out uh just conversationally uh, as he was as he was thinking through ideas, and then i I began drafting and he and he was doing some himself too. Until we finally were putting, got putting it did all together. Did you read all of the inaugural? I did yourself? not know.
1: I did not know.
3: Mike, did you? Yeah, you actually, did. <laughs> yeah. Well, because there's a presidential voice that is somewhat different from a normal voice or even a senatorial voice, and uh-huh. it's important to kind of understand what it is. But when I, I will say that uh, to back up what Steve had said, when I I was not a speechwriter on the campaign, so I had not written with him before. Um, but uh, when I got asked to work on the first inaugural, I taped rules above my computer, and it said, uh, no quoting dead people, no reversible raincoat sentences, which is the, the sentences like, ask not what your country can do, ask what you can do for your country, and every single one of the rules was violated uh, <laughs> by the stuff that he, he put in, if nothing else. The, 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 he, on that speech, Clinton also had never had a speechwriter when he was governor of Arkansas. He didn't like it. Uh, and he was very different from Nixon, but he was much more, much more sort of f- f- verbose and, and all the ways that we know that he was a good communicator, but, but somewhat uh, wordy and disorganized. But, but the, you couldn't do that with an inaugural uh-huh. address. We sat down with him at the uh, table in the governor's mansion, and when a, first he, com- he asked for a lot of outside people to write memos and drafts and suggestions, thinkers, writers. Uh, and then we sat down with a tape recorder and a notepad, and went over you he, and he and, uh, and George Stephanopoulos and another writer David Kuznet um, and then uh, we went off and produced a draft and what we learned and this was the first speech I worked on with him but far from the last was that the way he did his best writing was by crossing out what you'd written and writing between the lines or dictating and so there was very little of what was originally written that remained uh, and what by the end... What happens to your ego as a writer? Uh, you know you can't Shattered. you can't be a poet in a lo- you know in a garret on, on that kind of thing it's not your speech um, can i
0: ask you a question about that did he extemporize at all during the, during the inaugural cuz i and other
3: speeches he went wild in that way not at the podium no but he re- he was the way one of the ways he wrote was at the, was at a rehearsal podium so that one of the, you do learn something about how a president's going to function in Uh, in this first flush of being president, we worked into the night at Blair House the night before the inaugural, and he had a a teleprompter and a podium and rehearsed basically till about 3 or 4 in the morning and wrote from the podium very effectively, you know, tightened and and improved it enormously as he went along. But the teleprompter operators who were wonderful people, military officers who were used to President George H.W. Bush, this was not what they were used to, and they finally said, uh, is he really going to rehearse all night? <laughs> and we said, get used to it. This, you know, <laughs> bring in reinforcements.
1: Walter, you were mentioning before about the Obama team, and you mentioned his chief speechwriter. How do you think they're working it out? What do you know about that?
4: Well, not too much other than what's really interesting about John Favreau, Obama's chief speechwriter, is he's only, despite a brief period working for John Kerry, he is someone, he's almost a tabular Raza. He is a, a, the channeler of Barack Obama. It is not someone who's had a long career doing other things. So in a lot of ways, I think Obama has dictated, Favreau has tinkered, Obama went over, rewrote, Favreau tinkered, and for all I know, other people are involved as well, I'm sure, David Axelrod is involved. What I wonder, is this the moment where Larry Summers takes a look at a paragraph about the economy to say, you can't say this. Hillary Clinton wants to really see what we're saying about the world. Uh, and there is always the danger at this moment where the by the committee problem
1: But I comes should imagine in. that he understands himself the historic nature of his speech next Tuesday, and he wants his imprint all over that, and maybe that sort of wafts off into the immediate atmosphere and Hillary Clinton is not gonna bother them. I you know, I hope that is the case. I mean, in other words, we're gonna get
4: pure Obama. And I really hope it is a whole series of imagery and a whole series approach to the inaugural address that we have not seen before. Because I do think, looking at the last 10 or so inaugurals with, um, a, with great reluctance, given the two distinguished well on the stage with me who wrote them, uh, this has been, you can make an argument that the inaugural address has been in a tailspin since cars had tail fins. Uh, but one, just one more sentence. Ronald Reagan's inaugurals are not his great speeches. And it's really fascinating. For the modern president who had the most great speeches, his inaugurals are not up there. And part of it is he succumbed to just what Steve has said you shouldn't succumb to, and what Michael Waldman had on his computer. Lots of quotes from dead people.
0: Yeah, and, I think the the, the the problem with the Reagan one was, the first one, Uh, was that it really was sort of a reworking of his basic boilerplate campaign speech.
1: Well, he apparently had Uh, something called the speech.
0: Yeah, and that was a shame. Not that that wasn't a great speech for other purposes, uh, but this is a unique speech. There's nothing uh, nothing quite like it, nothing that a president has done before, nothing that a president would, would do after. It's not a State of the Union speech. It's not a campaign speech. It's something very special.
3: But Reagan did something in the first inaugural that, that was somewhat gutsy and very programmatic. And I guess I would push back a little bit to say that I do think that these speeches are most successful, not only when they're eloquent, but also when we can identify pretty clearly what the policy argument is that the president is making in the speech. Reagan said, in, in the course of a speech that was full of a lot of kind of corny imagery and rambling, he said, in, the, in this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problems. Government is the problem. And that uh, very clear ideological statement marked a very significant shift in how presidents talked about government and in the whole philosophy, public philosophy of the country for many decades. Uh, Sean Wilentz, the great historian, calls it the age of Reagan. uh, And that speech was a pretty significant thing. And so sometimes you see a dialogue among the presidents on big issues, whether it's race or the role of the country in the world or the role of government. And I wouldn't be surprised if Obama in effect, took that on, because in the, present solution, in the present crisis, he doesn't seem to think government is not the solution. Ray, let me, that, ju- let me, I, me no, just... No, no,
0: I think that what that, what that does is, is so interesting. If I had a, 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 to give advice to a president-elect about to write a speech, just for the fun of it, just to start, I'd say, write, a, write your bumper sticker. Write the one thing you think you can do on a bumper sticker that reflects you. Because it's, in fact, I'm worried that you talked, it might be a 20-minute speech or something, or a 15. The, the, the coin of the realm, of course, is, is 12 minutes in John Kennedy. If you go more than 15, I, I would worry about that. So you, you don't have much room there. You have room for, for at least one big idea, the idea to which you want to be remembered, the idea to which you want uh, your, your presidency to be known as. And of course, that's what, what Reagan did, I think, in that case.
1: Ray, that raises a question about the value, the importance of phrases of six or seven words that people can remember. Um, did you and Nixon sit down and try to come up with phrases of that sort?
2: Uh, not in any conscious programmatic way, no. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, one thing: uh, by the time we did the first No Girl, he and I had been working together for almost two years, uh-huh. and so uh, it was easy working back and forth. It wasn't. Uh, And we could try out ideas on one another and that sort of stuff. And uh, so it was not a a structured thing. It was just uh, kind of working together. Um, But um, also, uh, one thing kind of interesting. Uh, We, uh, when we're working on the first inaugural, his transition headquarters was in the Pierre Hotel in New York. He lived around the corner from that on on Fifth Avenue. And uh, the inauguration was on a Monday. Saturday, he and I worked together at his office until midnight, his transition office, until finally we were sure we had had it just right. He reached into the refrigerator in the office, and there was one bottle of Heineken. He took that out, and we shared that. And then his secretary Rose Woods and I walked him around the corner to his home, and I went home and we was trying to get packed and so forth to come down. I was going to fly down with him on Sunday to Washington. Uh, while I was doing that, the phone rang. It was Nixon. He had another thought uh, for the opening. And it was a good one. We worked back and forth on the phone, and I think it was the opening that uh, I ask you to share with me uh, uh, to to the citizen of Africa. Now I put it. I ask you to share with me the majesty of this moment. It, uh, in the in the orderly transfer of power, we celebrate the unity that keeps us free, which I think was, was a good a good starting note to do. But that was just that that uh, Sunday morning thing. And then I joined him in the helicopter, taking us to the plane to take us to Washington.
1: Is there a theme that? you always want a strike that is historic or a theme that is linked very specifically to your president?
2: Uh, I, I, think, I think more very specifically. In other words, for, especially for the first inaugural, you're pointing directions uh, mm-hmm. for yourself and for the country, and, and as the leader of the world uh, for, for the rest of the world. And uh, one of his directions was he wanted to not expand but reduce the role of government. Uh, We've been on a massive expansion for quite a, few, quite a while. And uh, he thought things could better be done by people than by than by bureaucracies, and so he he, did, he made the point very very clearly. I forget now the phrasing, but throughout that this was this was a, g- a general direction, but but also that uh, you wanted to do it in ways that uh, would kind of advance all sorts of equality and so forth.
1: Well, you made a distinction before about an inaugural speech and a major presidential address, and with Reagan you were saying that. Some of the better ones were not the inaugural speech. Um, How did that develop, do you think? Why was that the case?
4: Well, I think to a large extent, you cannot go into a level of programmatic detail in an inaugural address. Also, talking about Reagan, um, some of his greatest speeches were in response to a crisis, like um, the... um, I'm I'm blanking on the... um, Um, The Challenger crisis. Mm -hmm. So uh, while you have crises coincidental with inaugurations, for Reagan it was the hostages being released, Um, um, for Barack Obama it is two wars and an economic collapse and who knows what's happening in Gaza, Um, but to a large extent it's not a crisis speech, so you're not really playing off the news of the day. But really at the core here, and I thought it was really significant that Barack Obama, in addition to doing TV interviews and press availabilities, also did a formal address last Thursday on the economic crisis, which is another way of saying, I realize this kind of detail is not fitting for an inaugural address, but I have to talk about it so this will be my time.
0: But, but, you know, really, when you say crisis, of course, course, it's not the challenger, but the great inaugural speeches did come at a crisis of the moment. If you want to talk about the three, four greatest, perhaps, uh, three, that would apply to three, certainly Lincoln's two, uh, and certainly FDR's uh, first. The only exception to that, which I think is fascinating, is the, is the John F. Kennedy one, yeah. which ca- came at a moment that could have been given in any period during the Cold War, and that seemed to be strictly the, the, the language that captured well,
3: us. And he, he and you're exactly right. And he, uh, he was criticized even at the time, but certainly later, that he was in effect trying to create more of a crisis sensibility with the inaugural, hmm. pay any price, bear any burden. That was. Remember, this was only three days after President Eisenhower had warned about the military-industrial complex and, in fact, warning about trying to do too much. Um, and you, you, the, the other great inaugural, uh, sort of in the pantheon, is Jefferson's first, and that was also in the middle of a crisis, it doesn't seem like a crisis now, which was the first time that an incumbent president had been defeated. And it lingered on in the Congress. And it was called the Revolution of 1800. It was a very big deal. And Jefferson's speech dealt with that crisis when he said the two, the two new political parties were the, were the Republicans and the Federalists. And he said, we are all Federalists. We are all Republicans. And uh, you're exactly right. But I do think, for better or worse, that Obama's ha- uh, better for the for the speech and worse for the country. We're in enough of a crisis that it could be raw material for... Steve, for, What uh, for you, the you
1: worked for... General President Eisenhower. Mm -hmm. What was it like to work with him doing this speech? Well, he was the
0: oldest president. I was the youngest speechwriter at that point. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, uh, He he had been a speechwriter himself for for Douglas MacArthur when he was. MacArthur was. So he didn't need you? Uh, He he really didn't. Uh, (laughs) He he really didn't for for several reasons. One reason was uh, unlike the other, at least several of us, certainly. uh, Nixon and uh, uh, and Clinton. Uh, he was a real uh, um, meat and potatoes speech, right? Uh, you know, that's that's why he just wanted the facts. He wanted the facts straight. Uh, he wanted the facts clean. He wasn't interested in in the flourishes. Uh, and of course, his speeches went through a murderers row uh, of lawyers on the staff. There's no way that Eisenhower could have uh, speech could have been, like the George W. Bush State of the Union with the sixteen words that uh, you know, it uh, you know, if you wanted to put into the speech, uh, uh, the fog comes in on little cat's feet, there would have been three lawyers telling you prove it, you know, that sort of thing. It was it was rough getting through anything that was uh, had any flash. A, a couple times I managed to do that, and the funny part about it is, then the president sort of loved it when you could get through something that had a little flair to it. Now, the other reason why he didn't really need me in the way that, uh, was we gave so few speeches. I mean, we gave uh, maybe one major speech a week, a couple things that we now call, at least we call Rose Garden rubbish. Uh, which are not that way. Uh, some group comes in and you greet them. Uh, in, in fact, that uh, when I mentioned that once in a in a session with, with Joe Lockhart, the press secretary to, to Clinton, he said there ain't no such thing anymore because everything the president says is going to be out there uh, some way. Uh, but there were really, uh, what I, I, you know, I, my resume uh, says I'm the no- I was the number two speechwriter. That sounds pretty <laughs> grand when there are eight now, but that was a, we only had two.
2: <laughs> you know, we,
0: we weren't overworked. So uh, he might have been able to get along with, with without me. Carter,
1: how is he to write a speech for it?
0: Different,
4: I think, would be the word. Uh, everyone has a memento from their speech-writing years in their office. Mine is something that was a blurred nineteen uh, seventy Xerox of a set of instructions that Jimmy Carter scrawled on Air Force One and had Xeroxed um, on that old-fashioned Xerox paper for all the speechwriters. And it is the only writing instructions I've ever gotten. It had sentences like, to the speechwriters, it's with Jody and me, not with Jody and I. (laughs) (laughs) Don't put in contractions. Let me do it. Number three, too many speeches begin with and and but. Uh, too many sentences begin with and and but, and there is only one verity that every speechwriter will recognize. Original drafts are too late and too long, but to a large extent, there, there is a problem that even, I guess, Robert Sherwood, who wrote speeches for, Eisen- for FDR during the war may have the greatest literary pedigree of anyone who's written speeches for presidents other than those of us on the stage. Uh, But even he, I don't think, could have made poetry out of some of the sentences that Jimmy Carter made me write, like, low-head hydroelectric power is our answer. I just ask not how much uh, low-head hydroelectric power. I mean, basically... Jimmy Carter was an engineer, and he looked at the idea of speech writing as a component in a very orderly process called government, and only um, after leaving the White House did he discover his inner poet, for better or for worse. I was about
1: to make that point. When he left the White House, he's turned out at least a book a year, it seems anyway, and you were superfluous, or... In those years, was he really depending on other people to write his stuff?
4: He was, it was both. Um, As a minor speech writer for a minor president, you can make an argument I was always superfluous. (laughs) Uh, But uh, to a large extent, there were moments, certainly the energy crisis and some of the imagery, some of the imagery that others put into the malaise speech, which Mm -hmm. let me say, A, didn't use the word malaise, And number two, the president's popularity went up immediately thereafter. And the disaster was when he fired four members of the cabinet about three days later. But that's a speechwriter's little complaint. But in truth, there was, at this point, the White House speechwriting operation had gotten large. There were five or six of us. Mm. And there was plenty to do. So it was really fascinating in the, what, 15, 18 years between Steve Hess and the White House with two speechwriters like the Maytag repairman uh, and the modern speechwriting apparatus with five or six people by 1977, 78, is a fascinating uh,
1: growth. Well, Ray, tell us about that growth in the sense that I've read that Nixon institutionalized the speechwriting operation. Mm -hmm. One, is that true, so far as you know, and you were there and you led it. And secondly, what was it like, you gave us some description earlier, but what, it, what is the best way, I think is what I'm getting at. What would be the best way of doing a presidential speech?
2: I think that depends on the president. Uh, 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 each one has his own way and it has to, whatever it is, it has to be something that fits him. Uh, in, our, uh, in our writing staff, most of our writing was not speeches most of our writing was the long legislative message to Congress. Uh, and uh, uh, these were long detailed, and they required uh, coordination among all the departments and agencies and, and, the, and the policy people on the White House staff and so forth. And uh, they took a lot of work, but that was most of our writing, partly because most of his speeches were not written. And uh, uh, so the, uh, the, ones that were, the ones that were written, uh, each one was kind of tailored individually. Um, but, again, he was a master speechwriter himself. And, it was, again, as I keep coming back, I was writing with him rather than for, rather than for him when, uh, when I was on a speech.
1: Michael, you weren't um, a speechwriter before you joined the Clinton staff,
3: or were you? No, I was not. And, in fact, for the first few years that I was on the Clinton staff, even when I was doing the inaugural, I was a policy aide. And I do think that, that to me, that's the key. Uh, it's not so much to- having... Uh, there's obviously nothing wrong with, uh, or at least there's nothing that can be done about having a separate speech writing staff. But where the problem comes is when it winds up being, in effect, a public relations shop over here, divorced from policy making and policy decision making. Um, I'll give you an example. By the time of the Reagan presidency, Peggy Noonan, we all know, uh, wrote some tremendous speeches. When she wrote her speech for Reagan that he gave to commemorate the invasion of Normandy, the D-Day invasion, which was one of her signature speeches and one of his signature speeches. She had never met Ronald Reagan okay. as of that point. I came out of a policy background, and in Clinton's case, because Clinton, by and large, was so deeply involved in the writing of the speeches, the speechwriter came out of a policy background, and a number of the policy aides had come out of speechwriting backgrounds. Bruce Reed... Had been a speechwriter, Sandy Berger, the National Security Advisor, had been a speechwriter, Gene Sperling, and we all wound up working very closely together. Clinton loved policy and his speeches were full, as we know, of details and facts and figures, but that really make, makes the speeches much more of an effective instrument of governance and policy and, run, and avoids the risk of something like the axis of evil being put in a speech because it sounds good and then the policy having, which is pretty much what, as far as we know, what happened. Uh, in uh, President George W. Bush's 2003 State of the Union, and then the policy has to race to catch up. That, to me, is the greatest risk. I, I don't think that's going to happen in Obama's case. Tell me what. Sorry,
2: if I could up, follow up on that, I think a couple of important points uh, that uh, just occurred to me as, as Michael was talking there that uh, uh, we, there was some follow up in our case from the campaign, because in the 1968 campaign, we had reinvented radio as a presidential medium. Uh, and it was very useful, and it has wonderful advantages that, uh, because it, it appeals to the ear instead of the eye and so forth. And uh, we could do long, serious policy speeches on radio that you could never get away with on television. And uh, you didn't have as large an audience, but the best guess was that a radio address would get anywhere from half a million to two million people, which is a lot more than you get in Madison Square Garden. And because of its nature, uh, it doesn't have to be. You don't have to put in applause lines, uh, so you can do a really serious uh, policy discussion. And we did that. Uh, we did, I think, in 1968, probably the most serious policy campaign of the, of the century. And uh, so we had that going into it. And the people who had done these were the ones coming into the writing staff in the White House.
1: Has the business of speech writing for presidents changed since? Eisenhower, Nixon, Carter, answer the phone. Uh, (laughs) Has it changed, do you think? Uh,
2: Of course, I haven't been involved with it uh, very much since, uh, you know, in the last... What's your judgment? Uh, I don't know, I wasn't around in in FDR's time, Uh, and, um, (laughs) you know, I'm I'm pretty close to it, but um, uh, having been born in 1930, Uh, but... um, yeah, you know, I, think, I think it evolves, but so much it depends on the individual president, because it's, uh, each one has his own style, his own needs, and his own aims for the presidency, and his own way of working with, with writers. Uh,
1: but at the same time, what, what Michael is saying here is that it's one thing to write a speech, it's another thing to set policy. And what you're saying is that the speech becomes the vehicle for the expression of policy. A and the speech writer has to be aware of the policy. And you've got to figure out the policy before you put it into words. Is that right?
3: It's true. I mean, a president often decides what to do when he decide, or she decides someday, decides what to say. The famous example of this is during the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, mm-hmm. the speech that Kennedy, did, they decided what they were going to do about the missiles by deciding which speech to use as the draft. And that there are many other examples throughout history where, where that kind of thing has been uh, the case. That doesn't mean the speechwriter makes the policy, but the speechwriter had better be fluent enough with the policy uh, and with the thinking of the President to be able to m- make a contribution. I'll tell you one thing that is different, and this is, it began to change even when I was there. It's true there's no Rose Garden rubbish anymore because even anything the President says is, goes out live uh, on uh, cable television and now on the <coughs> Internet. One thing that has changed a lot is they didn't have Google in the past. Uh, we, by the end of the Clinton presidency, we had the same number of speechwriters as had been the case throughout the years, even though Clinton spoke much more frequently, but far fewer researchers because the, the ability to write something quickly and get facts quickly is so much greater as anyone who has to do a term paper knows. Now, uh, you don't need 30 researchers on call to find facts. So does
1: that mean that there is less
3: checking by the president himself? Uh, that depends on the president. Uh, in Clinton's case, I, I think in the case of all four of the presidents, who we all had the chance to work for, Clinton was obsessed with the, the policy, knew the numbers backwards and forwards, and between draft 17 and draft 18 of a, of a State of the Union, if a number shifted, uh, you know, one percent, he wanted to know why. You've all
1: used that expression now. It depends on the president, and let me turn it around now and say it depends on the speechwriter and fantasize for a moment that there are many students who are listening to this and they're saying to themselves, what a fascinating way to make a living. (laughs) I want to be a presidential speechwriter. So what would you suggest, Walter, be the course, hang on, be the courses that they take or the field of study that they take? I mean, can you be an engineer and then be a speechwriter?
4: I think the first thing you need is an ear. I think the best speechwriters are the ones who both understand the rhythms of spoken speech and, number two, really have a sense of how to channel the actual person you're writing for. Walter, Peggy I mean, Noonan, ask not center. what you
1: can do for your country. That's not, that's not regular speech.
4: Come on. Right. I have to pause here and that's say... That's written speech. Thank you know where John Kennedy first said those words? This comes from Richard Reed's Kennedy biography, and it's my favorite inaugural factland. In the bathtub, he rehearsed the first draft of the 61 inaugural in the bathtub, and being a Kennedy, it was a huge bathroom, with all the words reverberating off the tile. I don't know if he was alone in the bathroom. <laughs>
0: Let me say, uh, answer the question. Well, (laughs) it's first of all when my I got to be a presidential speechwriter in this set of accidents. I was I had been a student at Johns Hopkins. My mentor, my favorite professor, was a man named Malcolm Moose. I was drafted into the United States Army. I was a private. Two years in Germany. Two years later, I came out of the army a private first class. In the meantime, Malcolm Moose had become the president's speechwriter. So one day I get out of the army as a private first class and a week later uh, I've got a sergeant who's driving me around Washington. Now, if you've <laughs> ever been in the army, that's a definition of very heaven. So when my students say to me, how do you become a presidential speechwriter? I say, be very nice to your teacher. You know, that's that sort of thing. But the truth of the matter is that, to, to be more serious about that, you look, look at FDR's speechwriters. Walter mentioned uh, Robert Sherwood who was a playwright Archibald MacLeish was a poet Sam uh, Sam Rosenman, uh, Sam Rosenman. Who was, in many ways, his uh, more, uh, chief speechwriter for for a while was actually a judge in New York State who who left the the court to come down and write speeches. Uh, Charlie Michelson was the PR director of the Democratic National Committee. Raymond you know, Moley they, was an economist. Yeah, there, yeah, that's right. So, uh, you know, it's it goes back to what you say: the people who have who may have if given the opportunity near for it. I wrote speeches. Uh, also for, for Richard Nixon, not when he was president, but when he was running uh, for governor of California. Uh, and every day I might go out for an hour to listen to him. Uh, he, I thought he was easy to write speeches for after uh, Dwight Eisenhower, because he had a real style. So your ear becomes full of how he sounds, and you go back and you write the speech. So I think there's something to that.
2: And uh, one other thing on your point there, Mark, that, um, a rule, because I had be, I'd been a newspaper editor before I was uh, a, a presidential writer, and uh, I formulated a rule for myself back in my newspaper in, editor days that I carried over into the White House in hiring that if a, if a candidate had gone to journalism school, I would not hold it against him as long as he was otherwise qualified. <laughs> <laughs> and I meant that seriously, because a journalism school is a, is a trade school. And uh, I could teach them the tricks of the trade, but I needed people who who had acquired an understanding of how to reason clearly and logically. And a trade school doesn't teach you that.
4: Let me just add one thing to the question I muffed originally. And that is that to some extent, it may be better to be younger as a Mm speechwriter for the simple reason that you still have a malleable ego. Writing through someone else is a very ego-deflating, in some ways, occupation. And I think it may work better for the young than the old. Mm -hmm. The other thought is that obviously for students, and my recommendation for anyone interested in public policy, is read an awful lot of American history. (laughs)
0: Being young helps too because of the energy level. I you say, know, I, I remember when I was just a kid in that regard, and I would see other people on the on the plane just sort of collapsing, and I still had enough to keep going for another hour. I,
3: I do actually think that one of the reasons, one of the key job qualifications, is the ability to pull all nighters, yeah. which goes which goes on in college and graduate school, but is unfortunately a fact of life for speechwriters. I made, a, uh, I made a habit of studying how this worked throughout the years, and when Roosevelt uh, had his speechwriters, they, they would go to the residence of the White House, and he would make cocktails, they would have their cocktails, and then he would dictate. Then they would go back to the cabinet room, which is the main meeting room in the West Wing, and they would work all night, and it would be catered by the White House chef. That was different from how... <laughs> it was done later. Um, Talk about Dick, a
4: downward arc. Lind,
3: Lyndon Johnson's chief speechwriter, Dick Goodwin, in his book uh, talks about trying to pull his third all nighter in a row, writing a State of the Union address, and just giving up and saying, I can't do it anymore. I'm, I'm done. I can't do it. And, and at that moment, a, a man in a white coat walked in with a syringe and injected him with a mysterious red liquid, and he perked right up and uh, <laughs> stayed up all night and finished it. And, and the, the significant fact when, when I was in the White House that that, uh, that made a big difference was Starbucks was introduced to Washington, D.C. while I was working there, and it actually made a big difference in the ability of people to, to work.
2: And one and what, 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 what advantage I had uh, back in our days, you probably probably couldn't have done this later on, but... I was able to get amphetamines from the president's doctor so I could stay up all night and <laughs> uh, and uh, and keep working and keep being sharp. And there was one time, I think it was one <laughs> of our State of the Unions, uh, when I had one fellow that I borrowed from Pat Moynihan's staff to help me on it. But um, I'd been up all one night, then all the next day, then all the next night, and on the following day, morning, uh, and I'd been using the amphetamines. I looked at my desk and I saw my desk also sitting at right angles on the other wall. <laughs> and I decided it was time to go home and get a little nap.
4: Before anyone concludes that Barry Bonds would be a perfect <laughs> White House speechwriter, <laughs> uh, I want to say the two things. Number one, even the most orderly of presidents like Carter, we rec- created a culture where the speechwriters were the ones who had to stay all, all night. Everyone else might go home at 7, uh, but the speechwriters were the people who had to have the crisp draft of entirely new speech that had been rejected at 6.20 as the, pe- as the senior people were leaving the White House, ready to go in the next morning. The other point is um, having memories of a college newspaper in one's immediate... Um, passed, for me about six years earlier, certainly made the pulling in all-nighters a
3: lot easier. But that is yeah. that is why it, it, it's a bargain you make w- I, in terms of your ego and everything else when you're a young person. As long as you're willing to be the one who actually does the work and keep control of the desk or the, the draft, you have all these big cheeses who walk in at, at seven <laughs> and say, I have something I want to make sure you, to tell you about this speech. It should be really eloquent. And then they leave, and they go to the cocktail party and tell people, I'm working on the speech for the president. As long as you're willing to tolerate that and do the work, then you could get incredible you know, access to, to things you never would see otherwise. But something else has happened, really, uh, uh, carrying it one step.
0: Uh, that didn't happen in, in my... St- Life and, and raised, and that is uh, and but started uh, in Carter's. They then walk out of the right, w- White House and and write their memoirs. Uh, that started with a Carter speechwriter, chief speechwriter, who left and wrote uh, the, the passionless Actually, president. Actually, started
4: with Raymond Moley.
0: Well, that's right, but he had been and gone a long. T- no, no, but he had been gone a long time by that. He didn't walk out. Well, and, no, and, he, uh, and do uh, that. He did yeah. an
4: anti-third-term book in about
3: thirty-seven yeah, or thirty-eight. Thomas uh, John
0: Hughes, see the ice and Harris Street. I'm talking about people who literally closed the door, turned around. We know one of your friends who did it and wrote those tales out of school. I think that's a very unfortunate tradition, new tradition now.
2: It's a violation of confidence. Right? I think so. Yeah. I
0: really
1: do think so. Uh, we got a microphone over here, and if any of you would like to ask a question, make a comment, you're more than welcome to do so. Just walk to the microphone, and I'll I'll recognize you. Until that time, Walter, what might have been your most embarrassing moment as a speechwriter?
4: Without a doubt. <laughs> uh, and There is all speechwriters, when given an assignment, immediately say, what's the most analogous thing that has happened in human history, preferably to a president of the United States, and what did his speechwriter say at the time? <laughs> so in 1979, I am asked to do the speech announcing the first solar collector on the roof of the White House. <laughs> I immediately say, ah. Who brought electricity to the White House? And the wonderful pre-Google White House library tells me Benjamin Harrison. He didn't say very much, but I have a trope. I have an idea, I have an image. So I build an entire speech around Benjamin Harrison bringing electricity to the White House. Except I typed William Henry Harrison, his grandfather. And nine different levels of editing at the White House, from Jerry Rafshun up to the president himself, no one caught it. And the president obligingly talked about William Henry Harrison bringing electricity to the White House. And in a pre-YouTube era, it wasn't until the New York Times pointed out that William Henry Harrison, he of the longest inaugural address in history, died three years before Thomas Edison was born. <laughs> the fact that I was not running the M- Missoula, Montana office of the Bureau and Lands and Mines uh, the next week says something about the indiscipline of the Carter White House.
1: Please. Daniel Litman I'm a student at GW.
2: Um, what tips do you have for President-elect Obama and his speechwriters to use? Um, his uh, ability to have great speeches for um, achieving his policy goals and uh, getting legislation
3: passed through Congress,
1: uh, since he has a, a unique talent in that ability. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Mike. Why don't you start?
3: Well, I, I, I don't, uh, I don't <coughs> profess to have much to give him by way of advice because I think his speeches have been so brilliant, and they've really revived the art of formal oratory in the country uh, in a way that I didn't necessarily think we would see and so I don't have much to add. The one thing I guess I would say is that it's the only criticism I would have of his speeches is that there's sometimes a gap in quality between when he talks about the country's history, uh, about its values, about himself on the one hand, and when he talks about policy sometimes he sounds like he's reading off of a fact sheet. And he needs to find a way to imbue his discussions of policy with as much skill and passion as he as he brings to these other things. Um, you know I think that recently when he the speech the other day for example about the economy was very well done and very sobering. Um, uh, so I, I don't know that they need much help.
1: Do you think Mike that that speech was done um, really could not have been done weeks in advance but what I'm getting at is do most of the presidential addresses, get drafted weeks before they're actually delivered do you know right uh,
2: I don't know uh, again I'm sure that I'm sure that varies from president to president again uh, but uh, but also it would vary from speech to speech sometimes you have to do it on a very short notice right uh, other times there's no particular time frame and it, you can go back and forth uh, and also it would depend I think probably on its uh, the complexity of the substance of it and how how much vetting it needed, needed to be done among various departments and agencies. And that's a large part of the preparation of a president's speech or message to Congress is the vetting it has to go through, often through six or seven different departments. And you're trying to, trying to rationalize, trying to accommodate one to the other and so forth, and, uh, and make it something that everybody can live with.
1: But an inaugural, for yeah. example, you're elected on November no, 7th. Yeah. You know that on January no, 20th, no. you're gonna raise your right hand. Do you have somebody sit down almost immediately and begin drafting or considering ideas or what kind of speech I'm going to do?
2: Uh, how others did it, I don't know. In this, in this case, I think it was very shortly after the election that Nixon just made clear that I was gonna be the one uh, working with them on it, but but asking for ideas from, ev- from everyone. From everybody. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And you said, Michael, the same with Clinton.
3: Well, with Cl- it varied. For a State of the Union speech, he would focus on it for two months. And he it was would. a very big process. And with a State of the Union, you needed to know how much each word cost. Something's a priority, not that priority, it costs less. Um, uh, Billions of dollars. Uh, I think sometimes these speeches suffer from too much thought too far in advance. Um, One thing presidents have with their first inaugural is they're busy hiring a government. And their second inaugural, they don't have anything else to do (laughs) for three months except worry about how can I make this speech eloquent.
0: Yeah, the Secretary of the Union, where we could have a whole uh, new panel or a whole new session on, on just that alone, it was really very different. I I doubted I uh, the process was much different uh, than when I, when I did it. I worked on a couple of them. The, the Cabinet Secretary sent out a notice to everybody, Cabinet officers and so forth, around Labor Day, I think, very early in the fall, uh, to start sending in ideas. Now, at that time, of course, before the computer, we were putting that together with uh, paste pot and scissors. We were cutting it up, shaving it around uh, in, in that sort of way. Uh, we would bring it in and out to the president. We've all talked about number of drafts. I should say uh, that we could send a draft back and forth to each other, Moose and, and, and Hess, for example, and it would say number one. The minute it went to the president, he changed it. it become number two. So we would go through 15, 18 drafts on a State of the, uh, the Union dress, and of course, at that time, that was more a statement for the government. What was the government going to do the next year? It wasn't quite as, uh, as global. Uh, and we, I could remember cabinet officers I was just a kid, and there were cabinet officers waiting outside my door at, at, at the office at, at 2 in the morning because they wanted just that one sentence or paragraph in because that would give them uh, the power to move in their, own, in their own department. So it was a, it really, it, I never thought of it as a, a, a glorious, elegant thing. It was just how much can you get in in a limited amount of, of time because the president was going to read it, for heaven's sakes.
1: And the president presumably would have checked what it is that the cabinet officer had oh, it, you put in. Oh, it
0: went back it went back and forth in that way. What, what, uh, Mike was saying that they didn't have as many researchers. I found that that was the easiest part I mean, You can call anybody in the government, the White House calling, you know, that sort of thing, uh, and somebody would rush the the, the facts to you in, in, in that way. But yes, it was the same thing. The facts were coming okay. in from all over the place.
1: Let's take another question, please. Um,
5: hi, my name's Emma. I was just wondering, um, especially for Clinton and Nixon, but if during the various scandals of their presidencies, if the president themselves would handle answering to the public or if the speechwriters would kind of help them formulate a response to what had happened?
1: You mean, let let us take Clinton, for example, Mm
5: -hmm.
1: Michael. When we get to Monica Lewinsky, (laughs) when we get to Lewinsky, was it Clinton who wrote his own statements on that or were the lawyers writing their own statements?
3: That many, but uh, I, I have pride in saying I wrote the speech where at the end of it he said I did not have speech. <laughs>
1: Did you write, you wrote those lines? <laughs> I to,
3: you know, uh,
2: so did you check it with the president know, first? It
3: was true, I had not. <laughs> in my case it was true. Uh, they, 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 they were, those, those were done in a different way. They were done by him and. <laughs> they, they were done by him with, with uh, lawyers and small group of advisors, but, you know, what, what was the challenge in, the, in that case was that his strategy for much of that year was to focus very much on government and on policy, and so, for example, that State of the Union address Uh, The the scandal exploded about a week before the 1998 State of the Union, and we worked very closely on that State of the Union that week, and it was a very bizarre experience because on the one hand, on TV, we would see people saying, speculating not whether he would resign but when, as Sam Donaldson said on ABC, and on the other hand, we would have to sit there and really focus on this paragraph and that policy, so we, we, uh, we kind of tried to keep the... The insanity from creeping too much into the world. Well, they doing.
1: called it compartmentalization, as I remember. That you could deal with policy and he deal with sex. Uh, there was, there was, yes, uh, please.
5: My name is Heidi Wolf, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about if it's difficult for the writer to avoid having their voice or style heard too loudly over the subject, or is it a problem at all for you when you write?
1: It's interesting. Ray, could you answer that? Please? Well, um, I, uh,
2: I think my guess is that depends partly on the president and partly on the writer uh, and what the relationship between the two. Is. In my case, because he and I have been working together, I knew his voice, and uh, he knew mine. Uh, he, was a, he was a first-class writer himself, and he has been a captain innovator and so forth, as I mentioned. And so I don't think it was really a problem there. I was sort of trying to write them in his voice. And, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I, it, and I knew his voice pretty well.
0: I had an interesting problem with with, uh, Dwight Eisenhower because when I got there the last two plus years of the administration he had had several illnesses uh, that meant to me that he was having trouble with certain sounds and so forth. I would always, and, and I responded to that in the way I kept away from certain sounds, the way I cut sentences up in a shorter way. Well, again, he went exactly back to the way he had always done it, and it was if he didn't even notice that I, or why I was doing it the way that I was. It was his voice, period.
6: Yes, please. Hi, Jeff Kappa, Service. I have a question mainly for uh, Ray Price. Um, at the time Richard Nixon took office, the Republican Party was an uneasy ideological coalition uh, with liberals, moderates, and conservatives. And the speechwriting team seems to have reflected that division with you and Lee Hebner coming from one part of the party and people like William Sapphire, Pat Buchanan coming from another part. Uh, Was there any ideological jostling that went on within the speechwriting team? And do you think Barack Obama is going to have any similar experiences given that the Democratic Party now is somewhat of an ideological coalition uh, as well?
2: Yes, yes, there was, there uh, was some dusting going around, going, going on, and especially say between Pat and me. Uh, but, um, uh, but for some there, there, uh, there were, times when he, he would want, say, Pat, more, more Pat Buchanan's voice, and, and so Pat would be assigned to that. But uh, actually, uh, the last speech, Pat kept kept an active role in the in the uh, in the administration right up until the end. But uh, the last speech that he was asked to do uh, was uh, one on the uh, invasion of Cambodia, which had a very very negative reaction around the country. There were riots all over the country. That was the last speech he was ever asked to do. On, on. Uh, he did a lot of other things, uh, very useful things around the White House, but no more speeches. Because it was not the voice
1: of the president use. Do, do you know whether Walter and Carter's time, whether rhythms, to philosophies in combat? There
4: was actually very little ideological tension within the Carter administration. That This was a point the Democrats had been exhausted by the ideological um, contention coming out of the 68 convention, the 72 McGovern campaign, and they sort of arrived at the White House a little ideologically uh, exhausted without these kind of Massive, what is the soul of the party debates?
5: Hi, um my name's Tony Marsh. I'm a professor here. And with um, I guess I want to ask what do you think is at stake with this speech? Um, what could happen because so much of what's going on right now, so much of the problem um, that we're the problems that we're experiencing right now are psychological. Um, and in light of the fact that Barack Obama right now is so very popular, um, and even beyond that, that people view him as different and new and a, and and a change, of course, I think that there's a sense almost that he can do almost anything right now. And so if everything went well and if everything went right, what could possibly happen with this speech and, and, what is at stake with this speech?
1: Can I possibly challenge you on one point? Maybe you'd like to correct it. Um,
5: Should I have not said I was a professor? No, but I mean no. the <laughs> idea of the,
1: thing, the problems being largely psychological? Y- yes. I mean, are you sort of well,
5: tending to dismiss the people who are being laid off every day? No, 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 country? no, no, not at all. No, not at all. So what, are, what are you getting What at? I'm saying is there seems to be so much um, you know, negativity and so much depression right now as a country, that we're experiencing as a country, and no, the people who are being laid off really are being laid off, and the investments that are going down in value really are going down in value. Um, But a lot of the economy, I know, is based on people's perception, people's confidence, consumer confidence, um, the way that people feel. Right now, for example, uh, people are hunkering down. They're not spending money. They're saving more, which is probably a good thing, but they're spending less, and yeah, companies aren't investing. So there's a lot, because people just feel bad, they feel scared about what's going on, so they're not they're not spending, they're not growing, they're not investing. If we could only turn that around, if there could be um, a, a real change in how people feel about the economy and the country and the future and where we're going, I think that it might just tip the economy in a sense. Thank you very much for
3: that. Mike? Yeah, I, I, I agree with that in the sense that in market, in market terms, uh, there's over-emotionalism, what Greenspan called irrational exuberance, on the upside, and there's panic on the downside. And there's an, often an overcorrection to real facts. When Toyota has a 37% drop in its sales in one quarter, that's not because 37% of the people lost their jobs that week that there's something psychological there as well. And that was when Roosevelt said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, it wasn't just a good line. He was talking about bank panics and about the fact that people shouldn't be afraid to keep their money in a bank. And so I was thinking about what the bumper stickers were, what the slogans are, in effect, that Obama would want to come out of this speech. And I, you know, one would be change, and the other is, yes, we can, uh, in the sense that he. it's interesting. He can't really unveil his policy with this speech because he's been breaking all the rules of, of transitions up until now by giving a speech every day and by being so public and so engaged. The only thing he can do is, is, is take the kind of celebration around the, around the inauguration and use it to change the psychology a little bit. And if it leads to the passage of if the stimulus or the recovery plan passes within a few weeks thereafter, and it's a good speech. I think those two things in, in combination, people will think, what a great beginning of his presidency that he had, no matter what else happened.
0: I think there's another thing he, he's, he's got to do along, along with that. We, we have been tied into something called 100 days because of Franklin Roosevelt's 100 days. Uh, And every new president has to suffer through this as if they can do something quite remarkable in a hundred days. And you can be sure on day 99, every presidential historian in the United States is going to be called by their local TV station or whatnot uh, to give an assessment of that. If somehow in the same speech, he can give a broader perspective of... of uh, I would even say if he could change the branding to a thousand days, that might be useful. The only thing I would worry about in that is, of course, John Kennedy only lived. Presidency was only a thousand days, uh, and I wouldn't want to suggest anything like that. Uh, but I, I think it's important uh, to get the, the stimulus, obviously, to jar things, uh, but to also uh, give some sense, uh, that that we need the long-term runner as well as the as well as the sprinter.
1: We have for our program only about five more minutes left, and I would like to ask Lee Huebner to uh, come to the microphone. <laughs> Lee worked with Ray Price in the Nixon White House as a speechwriter. So, what have we missed? <laughs> Mr. Huebner,
0: where are you? He's coming around. Let me add to this, of course, for all sure. those who don't know it, Professor Huebner is also the director of the School of Media and Public Affairs. That is the sponsor. He is our sponsor, uh, and we're very grateful to him. Uh, and I assume uh, in winding up this five-program uh, 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 event, uh, he'll
6: reflect on that. Well, thank you, Steve. Um, I don't- I guess I have two answers to Marvin's question. Uh, one is that uh, you missed so much, I couldn't possibly uh, <laughs> comment on it now. But I do teach a course that gets into, the, into these questions, if anybody wants to audit or take, take my course here at the School of Media and Public Affairs. Um, the other thing, of course, is to say that this has been a marvelous panel. You've covered everything. And as a result of that, I have nothing, uh, nothing really to add. Uh, but I do have two things to say uh, before the program ends, and one is that the program isn't ending even in five minutes because we have a reception uh, upstairs that we hope you'll all or most of you will be able to come to, a chance to mix and mingle and meet the panel and to meet one another. And if you go up these doors and just go right up the stairway, it's on the next floor up, and we'll be gathering there after all of this ends, and that'll be fun too, uh, a celebration really of the end of not just this, wonderful program, but of this series of five programs, it goes back to the, what is it, Steve, the week following the election when the first of them was held. Uh, the second thing I want to do is to thank everybody who's contributed to that series, the success of that series, uh, and, and they've been working very hard at this. Um, uh, people within our school, people in Vice President Mike Friedman's office. Mike Friedman's also a professor uh, in the School of Media and Public Affairs, and his staff I'll mention just uh, very quickly Maureen Ryan, Tracy Shario, Nick Micella, uh Cat uh, Lee uh, Wong Konkatap, and uh, Shannon Prasad, and many others who really have uh, made this a labor of love throughout all of these weeks. Uh, I should thank all the participants in these five panels, but I won't list all of them. Um, but I will mention Marvin Kalb, who's been a participant in more than one of them, and of course, uh, most importantly, Steve Hess. Uh, was it early last summer, Steve, that we had lunch, I think, and Steve mentioned the idea that his book was going to be coming out, uh, what do we do now, and that maybe we could do something through the School of Media and Public Affairs that would use that book as a model and give us a chance to, uh, uh, immediately after this fascinating campaign, move into and take the lead in discussing another fascinating set of issues. And it's been a great success. I think we've all learned a lot. Uh, And Steve's contribution wasn't only to write this book, but really to be the person who organized all of these panels, made it all happen, and for that, uh, we're deeply in his debt. Uh, It all seemed so far away last spring when we thought about how we were going to time these. Well, let's do one on the inaugural address and speech writing just before the inaugural, and here suddenly we are. Amazingly, uh, all this time has passed and so much has happened, and I think uh, Steve has done us all a great service by organizing uh, this series of events. Uh, Steve is also, I'm very pleased to say, Uh, a professor in our school, distinguished research professor at the School of Media and Public Affairs, and I know it's on your behalf that I thank him and everyone else who's been involved, and that we thank you. Uh, Many of you have been here for many of the programs in this series, others are here for the first time, but we're delighted that you've shared in this, and uh, thanks to all, and we'll see you upstairs. Thank Thank you. We can unhook us.